scriptures that are that we need that our hearts need that our culture needs and that is there is a need for Christ that you by sending your son were doing nothing other than something that was necessary we had to have Christ it wasn't even primarily to set an example but it was to meet a need an eternal need because humanity is destined to hell and you sent your son to block that you sent your son to live the perfect lives that we could not and he died in our stead he died for us so when we sing Lord I need you it is, it is an eternal and a desperate claim that every believer makes. I had to have you, Christ. And then in your wisdom, you took that even a step further. Not only is it conversion where we need you, it is hour by hour that we need you. That you have ordered the world to put us on our knees in helplessness. to teach our songs to rise. What a line. You have ordained this world and this life to force us to look up to You and say, God, I need You today. God, I need You now. I need You at this moment. And it is glorifying to You. So Lord, help us. Help us see our need for You. Thank you for showing us our need for you. Perhaps what the American Christian needs most is that message. We have to have you in order to live. You are not an addition 
You're the substance of our lives. Make that clear today, God. And as we hear from your word, my plea, God, please, 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 please teach us. Please feed us for your sake, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, if you are age three, four, five, six, or seven, you are released. You can go right over to that door. This is the new norm. Some of the sentimental types in the room were like, I can't believe my child is five, six, or seven. Some of the unsentimental types were like, thank God they're out of here. So, no, it's, this depends on, no, it's good, it's good. I, 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 I glad, I'm glad that we value our kids in worship with us. They need to see mom and dad and mom and dad's friends lift up the glory of God. And so while for a time they go back, we eagerly expect them to be in the room again to hear God's word. And we also want to invite those of you who may not want to send your kids out from ages three to seven. You are welcome to keep your kids in here. That is not a requirement. It is an option. We want you to be able to worship as a family as God has called you to do so. So please see that as well. Um, if you have a Bible, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3 is where we'll be today. My name is Josh and I serve as one of the pastors of the church and it's uh, my privilege to bring God's word to you today and I'm really excited about this passage. Now I'm going to ask Lindsay Fujawa to come. Lindsay is one of the prospective members of Redeemer. Can you guys say hey Lindsay? Uh, and she's going to read our text for us. We're going to read all of chapter 3, 1 through 13. We're going to be in verses 7 through 13 today, but let's listen to the whole chunk here. Ephesians 3, verses 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Amen. Thank you. So I want you to think back to your high school days. For some of us, this is a rather recent or even current memory. <clears throat> For others of us, like Steve Gray, this is ancient history. Uh, gotcha. Um, I would assume that every single one of our high schools had, or if you're in high school, has trophy cases. You know, we're talking about those wooden display cases with the, the glass perimeter, glass wall, and inside of those cases are, are trophies or, or medals or plaques or, or a banner, etc. Now, let me ask you a question. Are the trophies themselves what makes your school successful? Are the awards themselves the cause of your success as a school? You say, well, no, that's, that's, no, that's ridiculous. No, of course not. What are the trophies? They're not the cause 
of the success. They're, effect, they're the effect of the success, right? They're the, the byproduct of your schools, whether it's academic or most likely their athletic success. The trophies are memoirs of past and hopefully present greatness. The trophies themselves are the symbols. They are the, the representatives. They reflect the school itself. They say something about what your school is like. Now, though these trophies are simply plastic or metal at best, and they're painted with gold or silver or whatever color, because of what they represent, they have value, right? Does that make sense? The trophies matter because of what they represent. Well, this morning, the Apostle Paul does something like that. He lets us into one of God's most spectacular secrets. Paul gives us insight into how God showcases, how God displays, how God blasts his greatness to the universe. This morning we get to look into the trophy case of God and come to find out it's going to be an incredibly valuable thing for us to know. So let's jump back into the, the section or the, the block of, of the text that we're in. We're going to be in verse, verses 7 through 13. Let's read verse 7. It says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, Paul's speaking, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. Now, we look at just those couple sentences. Where does Paul repeat himself there? Look back at those, those lines. What's the most repetitive thing there? Grace. Grace. He says this, this gift of God's grace, this grace that was given to me. So now let me ask you an Ephesians question. Where have we seen grace already pop up in the letter to the Ephesians? Where's the primary place we've seen grace pop up in the letter to the Ephesians? Let me hear you. But God. So Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Right? Perhaps some of the most famous lines in all of Scripture. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Okay, so let's remember what Paul was saying in Ephesians chapter 2. He's saying that God saving you has nothing to do with you. This is one of the strangest things that you can hear. It's one of the hardest things that you can even grasp. That you can't do anything to make God save you from hell. And so in this case, hearing about God's grace is actually one of the most disabling things you can think about. It's actually sort of paralyzing. Wait a second, what do you, what do you mean I can't do anything to please God? See, our natural human tendencies say, if God is real, then I must have to do something to please Him. If I live a good enough life, He will surely reward me for that. If I live a bad life, he will punish me for that. But Paul says, no. That's not the way this works. That's a human way of thinking, but it is not God's plan. God's plan is to show you how great he is by doing all of the work for you. That is the extensive nature of grace. And so you see this in your notes. We're going to look at two types of grace. We're going to really lean on the second one, but just as a, a reminder, what is saving grace? That's Ephesians chapter 2. It's disabling. It freezes you. You can't do anything to save yourself. It disables the human heart, and praise God for that, because the only thing I can do is respond to that disabling grace. Okay, so that's where we've heard about grace. Now let's jump back to chapter 3 where we are. Here again, Paul is talking about grace, but it's not saving grace. It's what we could perhaps call serving grace. He says that God has made him a minister of the gospel. You see that in verse 7. The word there for minister is really just the general term for the word servant. Paul says that God made him a servant of the gospel simply according to or because of his grace. Now what does that mean? What does that mean? It means that not only are we unworthy to be saved, we're also unworthy to serve God as he saves others. Not only am I unworthy 
not, or not only am I disqualified from pleasing God because of my sin, I'm also disqualified from serving God because he's so holy and I am not. So grace is that extensive that I can't even serve God without grace. And that's why Paul reminds his readers that he's the least of all the saints. Did you catch that? Why did he insert that in there? Because he had no business He knew he had no business serving God at all. Some of the most scintillating narrative literature in the world is Acts chapter 7, 8, and 9, where we meet a Christian killer named Saul. And Jesus Christ himself meets Saul on the road to a town called Damascus, and he turns his life upside down. The Christian enemy became God's history-changing agent of the gospel. He wanted to show how far his grace would go. He wanted to show how extensive his favor on humanity really was. So while we see in chapter 2 that God's grace is disabling, the remarkable change is that now in chapter 3 we see that God's serving grace is enabling with an E, right? So disabling grace and enabling grace. Grace equips you for the battle at hand. Now notice that Paul says that it's by or according to the working of God's power. Now we've seen that phrase too, the working of God's power. That came in chapter one. Paul was using this phrase to describe the power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead. So catch this, catch this, this is big. The power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead is the same power that he uses to raise you up from your spiritual grave and it's the same power to give you the ability to serve and obey God in the world. So God's power isn't only displayed at, the, at an empty grave, it's displayed every time you obey Christ. That is God's power inside of us. So. This leads to, I'm, I'm, I'm explaining all this to say this. Here's, here's some application right away. Let me share, let me apply this to our personal lives right now. If everything you do, not only your salvation, but everything you do for Jesus is according to God's grace, then we need to be thinking of ourselves and we need to be thinking of our individual ministries in light of God's grace. So there, there's a pendulum here. There's a pendulum that usually swings two ways. And some of us are guilty of one, a lot of us are guilty of the other, and a few of us are guilty of both at different times. And one side of this pendulum swing is when you strip away all the false humility, we think we deserve certain things. We deserve what's fair, and we don't deserve what's unfair. See, this is a dangerous dose of self-righteousness and it can be toxic this is one that I deal with too many times to count we take our obedience to Jesus and we leverage it for what we think we deserve but if my life is based on grace I have nothing to leverage see being a slave of Christ is a product of God's power not my hard-working obedience therefore humility and contentment should be the norm amongst disciples of Jesus when we read Paul say that this was given to me according to God's power and God's grace alone it strips us of any right to defend what should or should not be happening or what we can or cannot do it's simply God's grace okay so that's one pendulum swing here's the complete other side there are others of us who perhaps unintentionally underappreciate and even reject the radical renewal that God's grace brings. So on one side you have self-righteousness, on the other side you have self-hatred or self-loathing or self-condemnation. Though Christ has erased your sin, you still give your former life credence. You still give it value. You say something like this, I'm not worthy to serve Jesus. I'm too messed up. And guess what? You couldn't be any more accurate. Of course you're messed up. Of course you don't deserve Jesus. But this is what Paul is saying. I'm the least of them all. I'm a joke. But it's not about what we deserve. That's what grace 
is. Grace says there is no reason at all that I deserve to serve Christ, but here I am anyway. It's not about what we deserve. It's about what God has freely offered. Not only has God saved you, he's commissioned you by his grace. You see, this is what happens every single time you come to Jesus. Every single time a person walks into the family of God, you are called by grace and you are commissioned by grace. Never put a dividing line between that. God didn't save you for you. He saved you for the world to see. So your past life better not hold you back from obeying Christ. It's huge. It's huge. (laughs) Obsessing about our unworthiness is a sign of unbelief. You're saying grace isn't big enough for you. And you don't want to say that about our God. Don't don't mistreat that cross by saying that your sin is bigger than God's grace. What a shame. What a shame. Let's not do that. So, either one of these are dangerous. Self-righteousness and self-loathing are two sides of the same coin called pride. The self-loathing one, we think it's Humility or humiliation, but humiliation is just the ugly side of pride. Both are selfish and they rob God of glory. But grace erodes pride like a good old can of Coca-Cola erodes a corrosive battery. You know what I'm talking about? You pour that, I mean, why do we drink this stuff? But I love it. Okay, but you know, you you pour that Coke on the battery, it just eats it up and it's gone. That's what grace is. It erodes your pride. Maybe it's time for a good old dose of Coca-Cola in your life. May we be a people overtaken by the glory and extensive nature of God's grace. Now, Paul has been called as a servant of God by grace alone. That's what he's trying to say. I've been called as a servant. I've been made a minister. That's a passive statement, by the way. He didn't say, I went into ministry I got called I got dragged into ministry I couldn't help but be a minister of the gospel and now we see not only that he got called but we see what kind of service it is verses 8 and 9 again it says to me though I am the very least of all the saints this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Okay, so when we're reading the Bible, we want to use important words as cues to understand the flow of a passage. The word to, T-O, shows us two, T-W-O, things about Paul. He's called for two reasons or two purposes. Number one is to preach the gospel, to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. Number two is to bring to light what has been hidden for ages and past now has been revealed. So, and I think those two are, are actually linked together. The preaching is the enlightening, right? The, when he preaches, the light goes out, okay? Um, but look at what's in the center of it. To preach what? He doesn't say the gospel this time. He says to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. And that's way beyond what he needed to say. But it's purposeful, it's intentional, because it's all based on who Jesus is. Jesus Christ is the central person and in, in terms of time, the central event in all of human history. See, Paul's message is this unfathomable, untraceable, you can't even measure it, rich, riches, this, this wealth of Jesus. What, what is he even talking about? What, what's Paul talking about here? He's talking about the good news. He's talking about the gospel itself. And Paul, what I love here, he's getting actually, he's getting pretty eloquent here because of how spectacular Jesus is to him. In Jesus Christ, there is this boundless, untraceable, never-ending wealth. Jesus is an eternal, bottomless treasure. Paul is saying that right when you think that you have exhausted all that there is to know about Jesus, you've only just begun. With Christ, there is and there has to be a daily and ever-increasing sweetness of who he is. There has to be an ever-increasing supremacy in your life. He is the very center of God's plan, and he is called to be the very center of my life. What God wants for the world, what God wants to say about who he is, it's all contained. It's all wrapped up in who Jesus is. See, Jesus Christ is the eternal word of God. 
What does that mean? That means that we, we looked at this in the mid-MC a couple nights ago. That means that he is the, the fullest, the overflowing, the can't, you can't even fully understand it. He is the expression of who God is. If you want to know what God is like, look no further than the carpenter from Nazareth. If you want to know what God is like, look no further than the carpenter who was born just to die. Look to the carpenter who died on the cross to wipe away sins. Look to the one who rose from the dead to wipe away the debt of our sin and the power of our sin, which is death itself. And look to the one who ascended into heaven to say, I have defeated the enemy. This is why Paul can say, and this is one of the most, this is my dad's favorite passage in the Bible, and it's often one of mine. Paul can say this at the end of his life, sitting in this exact same prison cell that he's in when he writes Ephesians. He's writing to another group of churches in Philippi, and he says, I want to know him. I want to know him. How can a guy like Paul say that? He's the guy who knows him the most. And he says, it, it, it can't end. There's not enough. I want to know more of Christ. I want to know what he's like. I want to feel him. And so he says, I'm ready to die then. If I can just see him face to face, I'm ready to go. That's the affection that the people of God are supposed to have for Jesus. Oh, what it would be like to think of Jesus this way. Oh, what it would be like to treasure Christ this much. See, I've been thinking about this. What in the world would my evangelistic life look like if I was as closely attached to Jesus as Paul is when he writes all this? This man couldn't see anything, couldn't see past anything other than the scandalous beauty of Jesus. Jesus was his entire filter. He had no compartments. He had no strategies. He simply breathed in Christ and it changed history. That is my call. That is your call to breathe in Christ so much that you change the little small world around you. It makes me ask myself all week long, what kind of riches am I selling to my unbelieving friends? What kind of riches are just pouring out of me to my family or to my neighbors? When others see my life, what do they see? When others hear me talk, what is the speech coming out of my mouth? Is Jesus the unmistakable treasure of my heart? If unbelievers were to describe my life, what would they say that I value? What would be the obvious non-negotiable in my life? See, you see this in your notes, and it is, it is the theme of the Christian's life, the distinctness or being distinct from the world starts, and I should say, and ends with the, a blazing passion for Jesus. If you want to be different from the world, it's going to have to be because you are obsessed about Christ. Because doing good stuff, you're going to get out one by other people who are doing good stuff and they don't love Jesus. The only difference between you and the, and the philanthropic pagan is that you've been woken up inside by Christ. That's the only difference. So being distinct from the world, even the good world, will have to be because of a blazing passion for Jesus Christ. So, it's time, time to start asking again, will this be a church so taken by the greatness of Jesus that we are speaking about him? I mean, for real. Are we bringing light into darkness anymore? It hit me so often this week. I'm so distracted. Just distracted. You know what I'm talking about? You feel distracted? I'm just distracted. Why isn't Christ dominating me? Contempt, we're content with temporary pleasures. I find short-term contentment, and the cause can be whatever you want it to be. It's exhaustion, it's pain, it's whatever it is but I, I, I give meaning to these rather meaningless trinkets in, in my life. I simply long for the days when Jesus will be at the tip of my tongue again. It's time to be overtaken by Jesus again if we want to see 
a world like Paul's, we have to describe Jesus like he does. Unsearchable riches of Christ. What a fantastic little phrase. Now, follow what Paul is saying. He's called by God to preach the, this wonderful Christ to Gentiles. Now, we learned this from Pastor David three weeks ago, that the gospel, Jesus, creates a new people. The gospel creates a people, a new people, and this new people includes Gentiles, those who were once far off from God. So follow the logic of what Paul's doing. He's very systematic in his approach, right? So Paul is preaching, preaching the gospel, because he wants to bring people to Christ, but not any particular people, the Gentiles in specifically. So Paul is preaching because he knows his preaching is directly related to God's church growing, the formation of God's church. So when Gentiles respond to his gospel, the church grows. So we need to ask, why? Why? What's going on? What is the point? What is God trying to do with this church? If God saved us as individuals and then he called us together as one people, why is he doing that? What's the goal that God has with the church? I'm talking about the universal church, uh, all Christians. And why is it a corporate thing, right? Why, why can't it just be me and Jesus? Why is it us in Christ? What's, what's the us-ness about? Well, let's, this is where it gets really, really good. Verse 8, let's read it again through verse 10. It says, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. Why? To preach the, to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Here's the big why. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Okay, so this is another thing in your notes. Let me go ahead and give the principle now. The church, capital C, the church is God's resounding display of Christ's lordship. The church is God's resounding display of Christ's lordship on the earth and in the universe. See, this is huge. Paul says that through the church, that the word through is means. How does it happen? By means of this. By means of the church, God's wisdom is going to be made known. So not only is, is it that Christ, Christ will reveal what God is like, it's going to be us. We are going to reveal what God is like. Through this new people, Jesus is going to be made famous. According to Paul, the church, by its very existence, communicates something about who God is. Okay, so think back to the trophy cases. God has created the church through the gospel in order to say something about himself. The global church is a memoir. The global church is a medal. It is God's trophy that showcases his own glory and wisdom and greatness. The existence of the church says something about God's victory. Now, what I would think what I would think is, okay, so God created the church to say something, my answer would be, and I would think, to the world, that I exist to be, to, be, to be something visible, tangible for the world around me, the unbelievers around me. And that's true. We see that in the Bible too. But notice, that's not where Paul goes here. Who is the church's audience in verse 10? Do you see this? Through the church, God's wisdom is going to be made known to who? The rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm like, <laughs> Paul, what are you talking about? What does that even mean? Rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. What is going on there? Now, we, we see this word heavenly places, or this phrase heavenly places. We've seen that come up in chapter one in the very beginning. We're gonna see it come up again in chapter six. So let me try to cut to the chase. Is Paul talking about angels? Yes. First Peter chapter 1 tells us that angels are onlooking, onlooking what God is doing through the church. But we know from chapter 6 that there are rulers and authorities in the heavenly places that don't like us. So is Paul talking about demons? Again, if you're visiting and you're like not so sure about this Jesus thing or this Bible thing, I understand it's going to be weird. But 
is Paul talking about demons? Is he talking about Satan? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I would actually, based on the context of what he's trying to do, and based on the context that's coming in March for, our, for us about spiritual warfare, I think Paul's main emphasis has to do with the evil spiritual forces, Satan and his crew. So listen, the establishment of the church is a signal to Satan and his demons that they have lost the war and that they have no hope of overcoming God's power and plan. The reason we exist is to say to Satan, you lost. This is why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16 that when Peter confesses, you are the Christ, Jesus says, on that rock right there, what you just said, I'm going to build my church. And then what does he say after that? And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, when, I, when I've heard that for years and years and years and years, and years here's what I think. I, I somehow got the metaphor backwards. I thought that we're all in this, like, castle, and we have a really strong gate, and the enemy is over there, and they're trying to break into the castle, but God's going God's to defend us, and they're not going to be able to break through. But that's wrong. Don't you see what Jesus is saying in Matthew 16, and Paul's directly connecting it to in Ephesians chapter 3? Satan has what he thinks is his domain. And I don't know what that log is called. I should have done the digging on this. But you know, like in the movies, when all the soldiers bring that massive log, and there are the gates, and here we go, boom! We're on the offense. See, Christianity, life in Christ, is not a defensive bunker. Please, please, God, just help me get there. It's no, God is saying, I'm here. I've won, and here's my stamp, the church. You want to know why the church will never go away? Because there's too much at stake. God is saying the world will know, the, the universe will know, Satan himself will know that I won because the church is alive. So let me give some context. Let me give some context then. Let me hopefully add some value to why you're sitting here right now. That's the universal church. We're a part of that universal church. So let me talk about this local church. When we come to church together on Sunday mornings, it's not just because it's the obedient thing to do. When the church gathers, it sends a massive and severe blow to the enemy. See, when we gather as soldiers in the battle, in the fight, when we come together and we sing the praises of God with voices lifted and hearts engaged, we're saying something to Satan. The very act of coming together as one unit on a Sunday morning is God's weapon against his enemy. So, attendance on a Sunday morning. Are we tracking numbers and giving? And, and, and those things aren't irrelevant, but they're just not the primary thing. You see why? The reason we care and the reason why I'm desperately hoping that if we have 100 members, that 95 of them are here, is because I want us to come together and say the army is ready for battle. That's why coming to church on Sunday matters so much. The plate is secondary. What's primary is to say, hey, we're all here together. We're all here together. Don't forget, he lost, we won. That's big. That's why we come to church. You see? That's why we come to church. And forgive me, I know the echo makes this a little uncomfortable. Okay? Attendance on Sunday should get us excited because the army is ready for battle. That's why it matters. So, are you tired of coming to church? Is it boring now? Well, reimagine why God has you here then. Because God primarily does not have you here today for your sake. God saved you to spit in Satan's face. To rub it in. So come to church so that we can say that together. That's why there's meaning and significance. And when you see that other people aren't here and they haven't been here for three weeks, hey, come on, don't forget we're fighting a war. We're fighting a war. 
Don't think. Don't think it's a benefit. The ceasefire, it, it's, just, it's just like World War II. We know this, right? D-Day and V-Day. D-Day was the clinch. It was massive June 6, 1944. The war is basically ours now. But we have to get to this place where the fighting stops. Come ready. Come eager to say Christ is alive. Christ is alive. Christ is alive. Christ wins. Christ wins. God wins. The splitter, the divider, Satan has to look at the children of God who have been saved by grace through faith in horror. We're on the offense. Is that our mentality? Are we living this way? Are we living as if spiritual warfare is real? So we see why, hopefully, gathering matters, but also let me think about the other way. When we we come in here and then we go back out, do we see why our missional communities suddenly matter now? Do we see why missional communities when they have a collective, corporate heart for the lost around us that we're actually driving a spear into Satan's defense. When we gain legitimacy in a school and it leads to sharing the gospel to real people, God looks over at Satan and says, did you catch that? This is my domain. When the people of Jesus see through the lies of wealth and comfort and we go to live uncomfortable sacrificial intentional lives for his sake God forces the demons to look on in horror and this is why DNA groups matter too does my DNA group feel mundane 70% of the time of course it does it's supposed to is it hard to be consistent when 28 million things are swirling around in my life and I am accountable to show up with these men at 6.45 on a Tuesday morning? Of course it's hard to be consistent. But when we gather together in these small groups to hear God speak to us, and when we gather together to drive one another toward Christ-likeness, and we hold one another accountable to be missional in our everyday lives, the demons shudder. They hate that. And so when a broken spouse takes nothing but her hope in Christ into her marriage that day, God wins. And when an accountant stands in integrity during tax season, God wins. And when coffee shops have the name of Christ bouncing off their walls all week, God wins. When someone is faithful to share Christ with his coworkers, God wins. When a family is hospitable to their isolated neighbor, God wins. Don't believe the lies. We are on the offense, not the defense. And so if I were to take what Paul is trying to say about who we are, I would say something like this. I think this is the main point, the main encouragement that Paul is trying to give the Ephesians. We are the megaphone of God's eternal victory in Christ. So let's live like it. We are the megaphone of God's eternal victory in Christ. Let's live like it. God amplifies his glory through you and me. But lest we forget how he did this. Let's finish with, let's just read what Paul says. He says, this, all this that we're talking about, God's megaphone called the church, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. This is so good. Paul's so intentional. He's so clear. Lest we get a little high up on our horse, none of it happens without Christ. None of it happens without Jesus Christ. When we ask the question, why God? Why did you do it this way? The only thing that Paul can say is, well, this is just who God is, and this is just what God has done. It all happens according to his purposes, and this all happens because of Jesus Christ alone. Christ is the means by which we are the church. Don't mistake me. You can't be a part of God's people if you haven't bowed your knee to Jesus. You have to. To surrender your life to Jesus Christ to be one of God's children. 
I had this guy, we, used to wait, we waited tables to, for a decade together, and he was an atheist, we, and he was an honest atheist, a kind atheist, and I was a Christian. And we, he would talk about, he, you know, he said, you know, my son came to me one day, and he said, you know, Dad, um, I heard a friend talking about how he was a child of God because he believes in Jesus. But isn't it, is, aren't we all just children of God? And, and my friend said, yeah, that's right. You know what's really sad about that endearing story? It's, it's completely in error. The children of God are defined by Christ and Christ alone. So no matter, no matter I mean, I say this, up, no, it's just, it's, he's a cute kid, but he's wrong. And I fear, and, I, and thankfully over a decade I shared the gospel more times than I can count with this guy. But, his, but dad is selling a lie to his son. No, children of God come by faith in Jesus alone. So you want to know what it means to be the church is to say Jesus Christ is my Lord. Period. Period. That is the only way. If Christ would not have died on the cross, we would not have open and free access to the living God of all who created all things. So never forget what identifies us. Jesus Christ. Crucified and risen and reigning. We are God's megaphone. Let's live like this. And I, ask, I finish with just one question then. If we are his megaphone, what are you amplifying? What is the message coming out of your mouth lately? What would other people say that is most valuable to you? Because we will be the most ineffective little church if Christ isn't everywhere at all times in everything we do. He has to sweep us away. I hope we are obsessed with Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray for a recovery of your greatness. And I pray for it first in my own heart that you would please restore to me just how special and precious you are. That there is a life in you. That it is not simply a statement that's made or a card or one decision you become our life you said that you are the resurrection and the life you are the bread of life in him was life and that life was the light of men we want to be overtaken by you so that as we blast your glory to the enemy that it is true and that it is faithful and that is, it is genuine. God, forgive me for my distractions. Forgive me for settling on things that just aren't worth my heart. Would you craft in us, craft in this church, an unceasing love for you. May we be separate from the world simply because we are so passionate about you. Help me do that as a husband where I've made the excuse of being tired and not sharing Jesus with my own wife. Thank you for that reminder last night. May that be how we define those of us who are parents. May that define those of us in our work relationships, in our roommate relationships, in, our, any, in any and all relational dynamics with believers and unbelievers alike that you might be the standard by which we gather and remind us of how important this is to the spiritual forces at work that you have bound up Satan and though he is annoyingly around he is lost 
Praise God, he is Lord. Satan can't have me. Satan can't have the children of God. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, what a relief to know that we can't be snatched from your hand. How important is what you have done on the cross? Please return its significance to our hearts today. And knowing your character, we trust that you will. We pray in your precious name because you are precious. Amen. Amen. So let's 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 do just that. Let's respond in just that way. Let's come up to the table with um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, reverence. Like the, uh, like. Let's let's come to the table, understanding the weight of what Jesus has accomplished. That it was at the cross that I was called to Jesus and I was commissioned by Jesus. What we're about to do is, is, a, is a metaphor. It is a symbol for what Jesus has done for us. The bread that is here represents the body of Christ that was broken and the cup represents the blood that was poured out for us that we might have a new covenant in him. And so if you are a Christian, we welcome you to this table. If you're not a Christian, we ask that you would receive Jesus Christ as your Lord. That you would come to him today. That if you do not know Jesus, or, or, if, or if Jesus has been a, a thing, or he's been a compartment, and you realize now he, he has to be everything, that you have to lay down your life, and that you have to die, so to speak. That, this can be your day too. This is God saying to you, wake up. Follow me. So as you're ready, and as you, if, you, if you are a believer, please come. We're going to go row by row, and we're going to go out this way. We're going to take the bread, dip it into the cup, and hold on to that until we take it together. Sing hallelujah.
cross as you wait for the crown Tell the world of the treasure you found For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. sing about our great God. in worship today. Don't forget we have fellowship meal directly after the service. Uh, let, me, let me send you out with this a little bit later in Ephesians when Paul charges the people. He says, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be 
foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And listen to how he says we are filled with the Spirit. This is the church. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your hearts. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I pray that defines us as a body. We are the megaphone of God's eternal victory in Christ. Let's live like it. Amen? Amen. Have a good day. Your mom said hi. Your mom came up. No, oh, I, I was just saying. Oh, I, I didn't side hear note. what you said. That was a side Sorry, note. side note. Anointed. Always have been. I didn't feel less of that. She Guys, you guys crushed it, both of you.